What is up, folks? You are listening to The Emulsion Podcast. This is episode 26. I'm your host, Justin Kana, and my job here on the show is to share some news stories in the chef slash restaurant slash fine dining realm that I'm basically paying attention to and then give my very humble opinion on the matter. Today's beverage is, it is the afternoon here in Seattle, so I'm, I've had enough coffee as per usual, so I went with Look at that. It's a little blueberry uh, limeade action. Unsweetened. I'm just relying on the, the flavor of these beautiful Washington blueberries to kind of sweeten the beverage, but hopefully that will get me through this episode. I'm, I'm caffeinated enough. I just need to stay hydrated. It's not super hot, hot outside, but I still like the uh, I like the refreshing flavor. I have a few uh, limes left over and these blueberries accidentally got frozen, so they, they made their way into this beverage for me. I'm super excited about it. So I record these episodes on video and then put them all over the internet as well as on iTunes and Anchor, so there's definitely plenty of options for you to listen, but if you're interested in getting something you've uh, kind of seen over the last few weeks in your circles or your newsfeed on this show, go ahead and tweet at me and use hashtag the emulsion, and I'll be sure to include it, uh, or at least, you know, give my opinion on it, why why I didn't use it if it's if it's one of those situations. Option B, and this is something that I neglected to mention in my big kind of social media rant last week, uh, is to get involved in these live streams. And I know I'm literally the most random and spontaneous live streamer on the internet. I don't think we've ever done an Emulsion episode at 4.49 p.m. on a Wednesday, but it's happening. I really never tell you guys when it's going to happen because that's... (sighs) Monday is podcast day. I always start my weeks off with the Emulsion, but I had a pop-up dinner that night and so I was, of course, you know, doing that, but so the show got postponed, but you know, just bear with me. If you guys have a day or you want to maybe sign up, find a, if you guys can find a way to let me know how I can at scale, let you guys know when these podcasts are going live, that would really help me if it's something that you're interested in getting involved in, because it's one of my favorite ways to get involved with the show. Um, but I'm also a fan of just bringing up your comments from last week's show on the current week's show, if that makes sense. Um, but regardless, always like you guys getting involved in the conversation. This is episode 26. Let's just get right into it. And the first story today is an update to, was it last week or the week before? I I shared an article announcing Bon Appetit's best new restaurants list. And this morning they unveiled their 10 finalists. So Atlanta's Staple House was named number one last year. Taking the cake in 2017 is another southern hotspot called Turkey and the Wolf. Oh, my phone's going off. Um, A New Orleans sandwich shop, that is what Turkey and and the Wolf is. It serves collard green melts and all sorts of other apparently next-level sandwiches. But the the rest of the list features some impressive, wide-ranging restaurants that are free of basically established big names, right? New York is represented by Hearts, a wine bar in the vein of last year's finalist Wild Air. San Francisco's modern Chinese restaurant Mr. Jew's. Chicago's Elske and uh, Kimuri Tatsuya and East Austin Izakaya meets Texas Barbecue Joint, which is super interesting. 
And a lot of them, this I'm actually quoting from uh, the article that announced the winners. So check out the full list. It's linked in the show notes with more links to the respective restaurants' websites. So if you see one or if any of those spiels I ran down for you seem interesting, you can go ahead and check out those restaurants. Or if you're actually in a city where you can have the privilege of going out to eat at one of these hot new places, that's the place to go check that out. But this kind of just more or less poorly shows how, like, badly traveled I am in the U.S. right now. I haven't been to a single one of these restaurants, not one on this top 10 list. And I only know Elske, which I follow along with decently close with-ish because David Posey was the chef back at Blackbird in Chicago for a long time, and I adore that restaurant. So I've definitely been keeping up with him. It's definitely a very diverse city-wise, so if you're looking for a new place to try out, they released this list yesterday or two days ago. So I definitely try to jump on a reservation now because I I, I can hear it. The hype train's coming. It's coming down the tracks. You gotta you gotta get in there before it, before it comes and swipes you. Next up is a weirdly, it's weirdly a story I didn't think I was going to cover because I didn't know if it was truly valuable or not. And then I had this moment where I was like, Justin, dude, it's your show. So we're covering it. And that is also out of Chicago. And that is that Ocheval, my favorite burger and duck fat fries shop in Chicago, is going to New York City. They're going to open up a location in, in, in Tribeca. So if you haven't been and you're in the Chicago area, seriously, just do yourself a favor and go. Preferably when it's really late, that's my favorite vibe to go when when at Ocheval. It's, it's spelled A-U-C-H-E-V-A-L. This is also linked in the show notes, but I know some of you either have weird access. iTunes sometimes gives you weird access to the show notes. So it's A-U-C-H-E-V-A-L, um, French words. So yeah, go late night, sit and have a beer, kind of chat with the bartender, order the burger with bacon on it. Uh, and it's definitely got, it's got pickles and cheese and Dijonais. You can put an egg on it if that's your thing, but it's everything I want in a burger. And New York City is very, very lucky to have them. I don't cover restaurant openings all that often here on the show, especially on the casual end. So this definitely means Ocheval is one of my favorites. Late summer 2018 is when you can eagerly await that. And it's going to be in the Tribeca neighborhood of New York City. Blueberry limeade break. Has anyone been around since the um, ASMR episode? That explains why I always take very close to the mic drink sips. If if anyone has been wondering why I do that on the show, it's not to drive you guys insane. It's because we covered a story earlier, way back in the day on the Emulsion podcast, all about this concept called ASMR, where people sit on YouTube and eat ramen and drink weird things just because people like it, so... And catering towards that audience. So next up, I want to talk about reviews, restaurant reviews specifically, and opinions for from those critics. And, you know, some people love to hate on them. And there was two big reviews this week on some pretty big players in the game. And I want to talk about them for a huge plethora of reasons. This is going to be kind of our deep dive for the, for the show this week. But... First off, I want to talk about Bill Addison, and he is the traveling critic for Eater, a huge publication, especially here in the U.S., and he dropped an article this week called, quote, the fastest way to ruin a $1,000 dinner, end quote. (sighs) Oh, geez, here we go. So the article starts off by recalling a memory of his, an experience that Bill had at Noma in Mexico in Tulum, and I know if you thought that we closed the book on Noma, Mexico, you're right. This is not about Noma, Mexico, but there needs to be this context set. So 
back in back in Noma, Mexico, the weather, I mean, the pop-up was outside, so the weather apparently took a turn for the worst during his dinner. It's in a jungle, it's an outside dining room, and that's, you know, kind of understandable. You can only control so many aspects of the experience, but these people were spending almost $800 a person to have this experience. So how do you combat Mother Nature being a restaurant? Tarps and moving tables, uh, like, into the kitchen... And, you know, they were under some thatched uh, roofs. That was Noma's answer, basically, in this scenario. And merely the fact of acknowledging the sheer ridiculousness of the situation was basically enough to put this restaurant critic Bill Addison's mind at ease. Quote, Strangers made eye contact and smirked conspiratorially. Nothing about this stir felt like panic. It felt like exhilaration. End quote. He then carries on to kind of solidify his point a little bit by saying, quote, even in the best restaurants, things go wrong. Platters topple, glasses break, preferences are forgotten, words are misunderstood. The finest hospitality pros I've seen in action understand that they can't control what they can't control. They can only control their reaction, and so they choose to re- react with sincerity, imagination, and diffusing levity. End quote. He also mentions another blunder in the article that you can read for yourself that happened when a new dish with a little kind of theater whimsical aspect was attempted at the restaurant at Meadowood for him, and it was quickly kind of turned into a joke when it didn't work. So, but for him, this this sharing of memories as stories is kind of a buildup, right? And it's more or less setting the stage and giving the reader all of this context for the for the bomb that he dropped on Single Thread, Kyle Connaughton's highly hyped newly opened restaurant in Healdsburg. So, doing his research for Eater's Best New Restaurants list, he was scheduled to have a meal at Single Thread in mid-July, beginning at 5.30 p.m., and this is very important to the story. So, now, to provide another facet to the story, I actually had the opportunity to eat at Single Thread just 10 days before he did, So, and my experience was much different to his, so this is going to get interesting. Uh, it's hot in Healdsburg right now. It's, it's in California, uh, it's wine country, more or less, and... It's like 90 degrees hot, and when you dress up for a meal, like when you're going to single thread, you know you're dropping that kind of money, you can't really like roll up in your beach clothes. So, for example, I wore like a collared long sleeve shirt, a light blazer, and a pair of chinos, and I was, I was hot. I was, I definitely did not change into that outfit until like 15 minutes before the meal, because that's just the nature of it, but Bill had the same experience, right, because we more or less dined at around the same time. He says upon arriving that, quote, my friend and I looked at one another as sweat started to trickle down both of our faces. End quote. And that's what's weird. Not, like, now this is what's kind of going to get weird. So when Bill arrived at Single Thread, he was directed up to the third floor of the building to have canapes on the roof. Like, that's your his, his first snacks, the glass of champagne, enjoy the fresh air. That's the idea behind being able to offer that experience. There's a great view of the tiny town of Healdsburg, but for him, he wasn't even close to being psyched about that. He says, quote, one fellow handed us sunglasses, joking that Ray-Ban should sponsor the rooftop experience. They beamed at us. It was as if they were willing themselves to not see the misery and sticky state in which we were. End quote. So then it gets even more interesting when they invite them downstairs to the main dining room, where there's definitely, like, the dining room at Single Thread is a big room, but there's also these little tiny, like, alcove areas where more tables can be, and it makes it a little bit more private, separates the dining room, so it's not just one giant room. But for Bill in this experience, it's still too hot, and they call a server over and ask to be moved to another table. Now I quote, 
this is from a, a server at the restaurant. Quote, the AC compressor gave out just before you arrived. We can seat you at a table across the restaurant. End quote. So Bill is writing now. He says, no smiles, no cheerfulness, no let's make it right for you and turn it into adventure. The other staff milled about us gingerly uh, for much more of the evening. We've since we've been labeled a trouble table. It soured our dinner. We certainly didn't feel like a guest in someone's home. And that is in reference, of course, of uh, Kyle's thesis of the restaurant that he wants Single Thread to feel like you are in him and his wife's home when you come for dinner there. So Bill says after that experience of, you know, being subjected to the heat on the roof as well as a very, very hot dining room and then you know, getting that weird treatment after asking to be moved to another table, he says he doubts that he'll go back. He says he loved the food, but the punchline is, quote, I'll always start the story by talking about how we sweltered on the roof, end quote. And to return to my story, the reason why I'm confused about this whole series of events is because for my girlfriend and I, when we went for dinner, I had anticipated going on the roof, right? I knew that's how Single Thread wanted to start everyone's meal, but and like I said, I was really, really hot as well. But upon stepping inside, they said, you know, it's really hot outside. Why don't we start you off with a cold beverage here in the foyer and we'll get you seated when you're ready. Your last few bites will be enjoyed upstairs when the weather cools down a little bit. And that's really, really weird to me because I ate before him, right? So like it's he didn't have this experience and then they have like a big meeting about it and then decide that this is not really like how they want to structure the evenings when it's really hot outside because like Bill Addison just had a horrible experience. So from now on, if it's too hot, we start them in the foyer. They already had that card up their sleeve. So why didn't they do it? right? Was it because they were waiting on his table? Uh, I mean, I would doubt it because like I said, he had a 530 reservation. There's no other tables before him. So was it because they thought that the snacks that they gave were better enjoyed outside? I mean, I'll, I'll honestly never know. This is something where I have an extremely empathetic view towards someone having that kind of an experience, right? Because if chef is downstairs and he knows that Bill Addison is coming in to eat and he wants to show off the roof, then yes, chef, the roof it is, right? You're going to take them up to the roof no matter what. But to me, how the service staff handled it is another weird point to me. And I felt nothing but extreme hospitality when I was there, given, you know, again, one of my best friends in the world is a captain there. I don't think we got special treatment. Every single other person at that restaurant was just as happy we had air conditioning, so that was also, you know, another factor. I would be interested to see how things would have been handled had that situation come up when I was there, but I'm confused as to how the service staff went about fixing it, right? So it is the the, the AC compressor thing, you can't fix that. It's, I mean, you can, but it's very, very difficult to cool down a space when the sun is beaming and it's nothing but blazing outside. That's, of course, very, very hard to fix, and there's definitely a, a, a soigné way to go about remedying the situation, and that's where I rely on you guys to kind of give me your thoughts because I'm concerned with a piece with what a piece like this does to a restaurant that prides itself and literally in my opinion executes so well on providing hospitality at the highest level. To me it's not right to write a piece like that when you have Bill Addison's kind of mic- megaphone, right? Where he can people rely on him for his, you know, fair and just opinion. He I feel like two things, right? He Structure this article in a way that literally kind of like he alley-oops such a hard slam dunk on a restaurant that, I don't know, loves hospitality more than anyone else in the game. And to me, I think, I feel like 
he could have countered it with a little bit more food talk. He could have given his thoughts on the food itself. However, and this is where I go on the other side, right? I'm also crazy empathetic to the guest part, right? I've had this before where it's not necessarily too hot like in an experience but the sun is you know too bright or the food gets talked about for too long and gets enjoyed cold i mean to me this is as much an issue about bill addison and how he voices his opinion at a table and how he basically may or may not have an ability in in, in himself to turn it into adventure in into an adventure right like you can take that upon yourself to be optimistic and you know look at the glasses half full when you're in a situation like that, right? Like, I've had meals in Thailand where there's zero AC and it's 94% humidity and 103 degrees outside and they don't have to come over and, you know, like, cheer you up. You just accept that that's where you are and you make the best of it. I'm not sure where I take this story because I understand both sides, right? I had a meal here in Seattle the other week where it was a tasting menu. I went out on a date with Anna and the service was not good. It was just, it wasn't warm. The servers knew I was a chef and they kept trying to flex their resumes on me. The chef at the counter never even stopped to say hi. Like you can just tell by the tone of how I'm talking it that that's how I start off that story every single time somebody asks me about that experience. I don't talk about the food. I talk about that feeling. And if nothing else, that's what I want you to have as your takeaway from this story or this part of the podcast. There's a great quote, and I think it's by um, Maya Angelou, and it's something, it's a classic, but it's true, and it goes something along the lines of, people won't remember what you said, they won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel, and that's 100% true, because it's, I mean, especially at $600 a head, that's where he gets the how to ruin a $1,000 dinner, because two guests, you know, with food plus tax and tip and wine, you're just over $1,000, but no one asks you how your burrito is at Chipotle because you paid eight bucks for it and you didn't share it with the world because you didn't share that with the world that you were going to Chipotle. Everybody asks how single thread was because they know it's supposed to be an experience. And the number one reason people value experiences over material possessions is because they get those feelings. You can't fake it, right? You can't put those feelings in a box and order, order it on Amazon Prime. You need to be there. And so it breaks my heart, but it also gets me really excited to have a story on here on the show making headlines that I can actually give my two cents on because as you longtime Emulsion listeners know, I really, really shy away from talking about restaurant experiences unless I've been there in the past six months. And this one actually had perfect timing for me to chime in, so that's why I wanted to kind of go deep on this story. Quick pivot to another really harsh review this week. Pete Wells, critic for the New York Times, gave Made Nice, the casual concept by the team at 11 Madison Park, zero stars this week. It's a fat goose egg. And that's crazy, right? So if you've been following along on social media with any of those guys, uh, Will or um, Chef Daniel, if the most gorge- they, they are some of the most gorgeous salads and bowls that you can kind of get your hands on for lunch. And Pete Wells just dropped a goose egg on him, and it's crazy to me. He laments that, quote, the salads and composed plates at Made Nice are mere shadows of the versions at 11 Madison Park and the Nomad. Uh, he talks about the chicken at 11 Madison Park and the Nomad, saying that those the chicken there tastes as if, as, as if it comes from some lost island where the gene that controls delicious chicken flavor has been passed down intact for centuries. 
but apparently at Made Nice, he says, quote, by contrast, the chicken at Made Nice is ordinary, moist without being juicy, as if all of its flavor had leaked out of the meat in order to make the stuffing as gummy as possible, end quote. And I'm going to read another chicken-related quote because this dude is this dude is straight savage on this on this review. Quote, another dish is called chicken rice. The rice tastes like tomatoes and needs salt. The chicken seems exhausted. Imagine a chain of Cuban restaurants started by retired employees of the Olive Garden. This could be their arroz con pollo. End quote. Oh, Pete Wells, you are... Oh, man. So, of their menu, Wells says he would only order three of those dishes again. And I'm. you can check out the menus through a link through the story that I linked up in the show notes, but... Apparently, their soft-serve dessert play on milk and honey, which is apparently, um, it is actually an, an, a dish from the Nomad. That is apparently also worth trying, that he mentioned in his review. Ryan Sutton, who is also from Eater, reviewed the casual spot today, saying, uh, or yesterday, saying the, quote, unexciting lunch, bowl, uh, lunch bowls, quote, do little to recapture the magic of the world's 50 best. And for those who don't know, 11 Madison Park currently holds the number one spot on San Pellegrino's World 50 Best list. Uh, here we go again. Justin giving both sides. <laughs> I can't I can't decide where I stand on this one, and uh, here's why. I'm not a huge fan of the comparison of 11 Madison Park to May Nice, and I'm going to try to draw some comparisons to make sure my thoughts are in line here, because I get it, right? From the 11 Madison Park standpoint... They want to increase their volume, and at max capacity in that restaurant, they could have probably done just under maybe like 200 guests in that restaurant with, you know, between the bar and the private dining room upstairs and then flipping the normal dining room downstairs, all of that. With Made Nice, they have the opportunity to serve hundreds, multiple hundreds per day and actually maybe make a decent profit. So to do that, you can't use the same chicken that they're using in 11 Madison Park, right? Like I bought two birds two whole chickens for my dinner on Monday, for my pop-up I did on Monday, and it was $50 for two chicken. Like, you can't buy that really high-quality protein and then, you know, find a way to justify the space to dry-age it to perfection and then have one guy on one station cooking that chicken all night. Like, would you be pissed if a bowl of main nice chicken salad was $34? Because that's definitely at least what it would cost to use that quality of protein. And am I saying use shitty ingredients? No, I'm I'm I, I'm just saying don't go to Chipotle and be pissed off that your beef burrito doesn't compare to the Wagyu taco at Californios in San Francisco, because it's it's just unrealistic. It's business, and they're trying to do thoughtful food in high volume with a decent margin. That's what their goal is, and you never be like, oh shit, I didn't get a table at Eleven Madison Park. Let's go to Maine Nice instead. The Nomad exists for that reason. Um, you don't say like, oh darn, the French laundry was full, and then you go to ad hoc and the pork was nothing like the pork at TFL. You don't do that. Bouchon exists for that reason. However, and this is where I flip it, the other argument has to be something along the lines of, you know, like, well, if they have the best restaurant in the world and they have three Michelin stars, they should be able to crush a casual menu, right? And again, this is where I can agree. The photo shoot stuff is great. All of the photos look great. The, like the salads are super colorful and bright and all the flavors sound really solid. But after that photo shoot is done, does my $15 salmon roasty bowl I buy at like 1237 on a Wednesday stack up? Would I go back uh, two times a week to get it? And if the answer is no, 
they're going to lose. And that's where I passed the question along to you guys. Was this a deserved zero-star review, or was Pete Wells in the right to make this the comparisons that he did and call the restaurant out for everything that he said? I'd really love to know, because... Um, I value your guys' opinions, especially when I give both sides like I like I do sometimes. So if you're on Anchor, hit me up with a call-in or a comment. If you're on Facebook and YouTube, go ahead and leave it down in the comments. And you know you know what to do on iTunes. Go ahead and tweet at me, at Justin Kana, um, Justin underscore Kana. I want to I know your take on this. Last up on the industry side, uh, well, I guess second to last. I have one more story I want to sneak in. It's a piece that I want you to kind of experience for yourself because there's a lot of video content that goes with it, and I can't provide that for you in this podcast format. But I honestly haven't worked with uh, this product enough to kind of give my opinion on it, so it might be valuable. It was very valuable for me, but I want you to get your a little education as well. So a disclaimer, a good friend of mine is in this last video on this page, so shout out to Danny Calvert. But it's actually a really, really good story article. They go into... Um, all about truffles. It's all about the three killer varietals of truffles in the world right now. But the part that stood out to me and the reason that I wanted to share this story is the part about education, right? So people, when they're educated about things like truffles, are able to, one, appreciate truffles more when they know a little bit about exactly what it is they're eating. And two, as a restaurant, you can kind of justify those higher supplement charges on a menu to use truffles if you know exactly why what you're buying is good and what's great. So I'm all about education. Uh, there's cool videos of three different chefs making videos with truffles in them. So go ahead and check those out if you're in the mood for some, you know, funky, earthy video action in your life. But that's where I'm going to leave it with that, that, that story. I'd prefer you'd see it for yourself. All right, our last industry story today actually comes from you guys. Connor on Twitter sent me over an article, and I just had to kind of chuckle when I read it, and it's all about a restaurant here in Seattle and how they got their investor. So let me explain. The company is called Little Fish, and it's funny to me because I did a snack at this pop-up that I've mentioned a few times in the podcast already on Monday with Smelt, and because I don't have a restaurant space of my own, I asked this purveyor who got me the Smelt if they could drop off the fish at a restaurant by my house, and they said yes, and I go to pick up the Smelt, and as I'm walking out, this lady goes, oh good, Justin got his fish. And that's because they left the box. That I guess the guy was looking around for me, and the, my name was on the box. It said Justin on it, and he, he was asking around for everyone. So I, of course, turned around, and I introduced myself, and it was Zoe, the owner of Little Fish, and she was also picking up Smelt. So that was so funny that I'm talking to them like about them on the podcast right now. But the story is Little Fish, so these two... Um, chefs, I guess, approached this big-time CEO with their restaurant concept, but with the entire company as a concept. And this company had an X factor in driving revenue, and that was canned fish. So, quote, Little Fish's plan to sell a line of products tied to its upscale restaurant operation checked an important box on the uh, on the list that Glasser uses to evaluate potential investments. Glasser, uh, the last name of the gentleman who invested in their project. So, the grand opening is for sometime in fall. They're going to be at a spot down in Pike Place Market, the legendary Seattle market, and they're going to have everything, right? So mussels, clams, salmon. Speaking of that, I thought it was hilarious that uh, GeekWire, the publication that wrote this piece, somehow smelled, spelled mussels as mussels, like flexing your own human muscles. But I digress. I'm excited to see what's in store for them, and I'm happy to have met them while they're on their journey. Um, 
But to me, it's just smart. As I've said before, it's 2017. It's literally not good enough to just serve good food. You have to have something else that you do, something else that either drives revenue or drives exposure, because otherwise you you literally can't survive. where you either utilize the space in a creative way or you need something to bring to the table and be like, look, we want an upscale spot, but we're also able to survive during either the slow periods or even help fund the space entirely through something more scalable. And for little fish, canned fish is the answer. So I'm all about it. I also feel like that's a little bit of a tradition that's been lost here in the city. There's definitely a lot of history uh, to canning fish here in Seattle, and I haven't really seen anyone truly capitalize on it yet. So maybe we'll I, like maybe we do a little emulsion taste test this fall when little fish opens so last up our non-industry story for this episode is all about a gentleman that some of you might love some of you might hate but in the realm of content creation and doing things on the internet i have to give hats off today to logan paul i know i know you, you like if you know who he is you probably are about to stop listening or you're crazy psyched about him but here's the story logan paul who got famous on vine hit 10 million YouTube subscribers uh, two days ago in just 340 days. That's less than a year, and it's never been done before, and that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about it. He did it on the backbone of basically building a community and being his obnoxious, crazy, extroverted self on camera every single day for 340 days. And it's not just him either. His his little brother Jake is also huge on the platform and they they literally had to have a race to 10 million subscribers and made like they they made a game out of it getting 10 million subscribers and Jake lost by just a few hundred thousand subscribers. So I mean, I I I would need to check, but I'm sure he's already there. You literally cannot deny the sheer strategy and pulse on society and culture that these guys have. So if you want to kind of see what the current princes of the internet look like, go ahead and check them out. But I subscribe to Logan and not Jake just so he would win because I'm the oldest child and I got to support that. All right, with that, this has been episode 26 of The Emulsion. A few things before you head off. There's a get, there's a guest show next week, uh, so I'll be hyping that up a little bit on my Facebook page as well as on my Instagram story and on Twitter as we get closer. I need to definitely do a little bit of schedule confirming with this guest of ours so we don't have any unnecessary hype like we've mistakenly done in episodes past, but still go ahead and submit your questions and stories if you have any. Uh, This lovely lady that I'm planning on uh, interviewing also has her own podcast and was at Per Se at the same time that I was, so we jam really, really well on everything that I already cover on this show, so I'm super excited for that. And as always, I really, really want to thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your ears. Get involved in the conversation. Uh, in that comment section. I love hearing from you guys. So if, you, if you're if you listening on iTunes, it'd mean the world to me if you leave a review. If you want to give five stars, great. If you want to go straight Savage Pete Wells with Made Nice and drop a goose egg on my show, that's fine too. I deserve it. But as per usual, go ahead and tweet at me at Justin underscore Kana and hashtag the emulsion and I'll be sure to read about it. Until next week, folks, my name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.